I'm super excited for spending some time in God's Word together. This is the next to last Sunday in our series, Seven Letters, in which we have looked at the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. It's in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Um, Revelation is the, the record of a vision in which John, the Apostle John, one of Jesus' closest followers, um, one of the twelve disciples, records what he saw in this vision that God gave him. And in part of that vision is a message to seven churches in Asia Minor, what's now Turkey. And um, there's a specific message for those churches based on their specific scenario, their geography, their location, their time. But those are also letters that were supposed to be passed around to other churches in the known world at that time with instruction, right? What was happening in Ephesus also mattered to what was happening in Jerusalem. And what was happening then also matters to us now. And so these are not just letters that were written to somebody a long time ago, but these are letters that have application for us today as a church. And so we've been asking what was being said to the church then, as well as what might God be saying to us, even us here at City Church today through these letters. And it has just been awesome. I have loved every bit of it. And I am so encouraged that that Jesus loves and cares for his church 2,000 years ago, and he cares for it and loves it today. And so, um, yeah, let's dive in. Actually, before we dive in, um, before we read specifically the church that we're going to be at, I think it's helpful to mention that every church that's on this list generally follows a similar format. Right? There's a similar structure to every single one of these letters. And we've looked at it every week, and we've sort of put things through that lens. And Jesus did a nice job of making that structure have every part of it start with a C so that we could remember it. Um, that's a joke. Uh, Jesus didn't. Yeah, uh, you get it. Just don't laugh. Um, so... No, the, the general structure of every single one of these letters. He writes, he names the church, and he says who it's from, and then he offers a commendation to the church. He says, this is what you are doing well. I'm proud of you for doing this. And then he offers a complaint. And he says, you might be doing that well, but you're not doing this well. And so this is something that I have against you. This is something that needs to change. And then he offers a correction and says, if you wanted to fix that thing that's not right, this is how you should go about doing it. This is what you need to do to get back on track to be the church that I've envisioned, the church that I've called you to be. And then he offers comfort, right? And, and so he concludes by saying, this, this is a promise that I have for you. Take heart. And the church needed to hear, take heart at the end of it, because they were not having a fun time as a church, right? It didn't matter what church you really were in the first century. It was not fun to be a Christian in the Roman Empire, right? They were facing intense persecution. Things were not all joyful in the church. Um, It was not a fun, practical living being a Christian in the first century. And so this was a, a tired, persecuted, exhausted fearful church that was very discouraged. And so every one of these letters, while, while it calls them to something bigger, it also reminds them that God loves them, that God is there for them, and he wants to encourage them. And I, I go over that formula, that sort of structure that every single one of these churches falls into for the most part, because the church that we're going to look at today doesn't. It doesn't fit that structure. 
Yeah, remember, there's, there's normally commendation, then complaint, then correction, then comfort. The church that we're going to look at today, Jesus does not have a complaint against them. He doesn't, he doesn't bring anything to him. He doesn't offer any correction. He doesn't say you need to start doing this so that you can get back on track. He, he doesn't have a complaint. Which is not to say that they were perfect, right? Because any church that has people in it is going to be imperfect, okay? If, if as much as you love any church, it's imperfect. You might love City Church so much. And I, I will wear this t-shirt all over town and I don't care to, to tell anybody that, that I go to this place. I love this church. But we are not a perfect church. And if you need proof, um, I, I would direct your eyes to the screen where you can see what my wife and kids saw two weeks ago when they went out to the car after church. Um, we have a white van and somebody decided to bless us with some red paint down the entire length of our van. Um, and there wasn't a red car parked next to us. So somebody had like taken the long like scrape in and then thought, oh, it's not good. And so they just like backed up and like drove off. And I don't know if they like came to church, parked somewhere else, whatever. But, you know, it's it's fine. Um, totally, totally cool. Uh, <laughs> We live in a day and age where there are cameras everywhere, um, except for in our parking lot. And, and so no, I don't know who it was, but God does. And so um, I'll just let you take that up with him if it was you. And it's fine. Don't worry about it. Um, no, my reward is that I get to be the one on the stage and show. Yeah. Uh, anyway, no church is perfect. Right? I don't care what church, I love this church. And really, if that's as bad as things get, I think we're doing okay. No church is perfect, but this church does seem to have something like figured out. Right? For Jesus to, to in this list of churches, not have anything to bring against them, no complaint, I think that says something about them. And I think we should probably try to figure out what was going on there so that we can learn from that. I think this church has something to say to us as City Church today. The church that we're going to look at is the Church of Philadelphia. And, and no, that's not an American East Coast city in the first century. Um, the Church of Philadelphia, it's found in Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 7. If you want to get there in your Bible, uh, digital, hard copy, whatever, um, we'll put the words on the screen, but we always encourage you to, to bring the Bible so you can see it for yourself. Um, So Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 7, is where we're going to find it. But before we start reading the words that are written to Philadelphia, I think it might be helpful to understand sort of the history of the city of Philadelphia, because it is not the place of the eagles. Um, Philadelphia was kind of a random city, right? Of all the seven churches, the seven cities that are listed in the book of Revelation, this is the least significant. It's the smallest city. It had the least going for it. It it was sort of set up as a a city or a town to be used for other people's purposes. Okay, It was founded by the Greeks so that they could spread Greek culture to the region. It wasn't even like, we got to get the resources that are there. We need to, there was nothing going on. Really, it was a highway city. It was in the middle of a bunch of other cities. So I don't know if you can picture a city somewhere that would be like, three hours from Indianapolis or St. Louis or Cincinnati or Nashville. Um, You got it. You're getting there. Um, 
But yeah, it, it was not a destination. It was a little city that was really just a pit stop on your way to somewhere else. And this little tiny city probably had a little tiny church. And that little tiny church in the little tiny city, I think, has a whole lot to say to us. Right? Most of the people that were in the church, these are people that have come from Judaism. They grew up as Jewish boys and girls, and they were raised in the Jewish community, and then they came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so these are people who have come out of Judaism and are now followers of Jesus. And that's important because it's going to help us understand the first few verses. Let's read the letter to the church of Philadelphia. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they're not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victor- to the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, the thing that stands out in this, if you've read the rest of the letters, is that Jesus doesn't tell them they're doing anything wrong. Nothing. He just, he says, you know, good job. I see your deeds. I know what you're doing. He, he also uses some confusing language, right? There's, there's plenty that's being said, even if it's not bad stuff. And, and some of it can be a little confusing. And so it's helpful to remember, right? These are Jewish people who have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so when, when the, the author says in verse 7, um, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. That seems like a really weird thing to start a letter with or to introduce yourself as, unless you were good Jewish people who grew up reading the prophets, right? And so if you read the prophet Isaiah, who spoke to the people of Israel in a time when it was not fun to be an Israelite, of a day that would be better, when the Messiah would come, when God would reign among his people and he would set the world to rights, if you had read that scroll a lot as a child... Those words would have stood out to you because Isaiah 22, verse 22 says, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Sound familiar? Jesus is identifying himself as the fulfillment of those promises. Right? I am the one who was promised. God has been true to his word. I am who that says I am. And so you can trust me. That stands out to them. And then he paints this picture in verse 8. He says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, 
Yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. All he says is he knows their deeds. He doesn't list how amazing their deeds are. He doesn't list all the incredible things that they have done. He doesn't talk about their reputation. He just paints a picture of a little church in a little city that has very little strength left. That's the church of Philadelphia. Yet what that little church in that little city with little strength has done is something incredible. And that is they've been faithful. Right? Faithful in light of what? It's of persecution. Right? They've been faithful in the face of persecution. And when we talk about that, and we've talked about that a lot throughout this series because that's what the church was living under. That's why the church needed to be encouraged. They were facing persecution. But honestly, as 21st century Americans, sometimes that word feels foreign. Right? The idea of persecution, for us, a lot of times, when we feel persecuted as Christians, it's, it's a fear that, that maybe our rights are going to be infringed upon. Or we worry about what kind of media coverage we get. Or, or we're, we're concerned what, what friends or neighbors or coworkers or family members might think because of our faith. That's what we feel as persecution. And then we talk about the persecution that these guys are dealing with. And it feels like a completely different world. We hear about persecution that our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world are facing. And it feels foreign. It feels like there's a whole other world that this is happening in. And it's kind of hard to connect with that world. And so real quick, I want to try and connect our world with their world just a little bit. I want to show you a picture that archaeologists have found. It's called the Aleximanos Graffito. Okay, and this is from the um, the Palatine in Rome. Okay, this is like a, a common marketplace area, social. This is the, the billboard or the bulletin board in the middle of the town square. Okay, this is where people put news. If you want to say something to the community, this is where you put it. And instead of tacking it up on the board, you carve it into the rock with a knife. And that might be a little bit hard to see. So here's the black and white relief of it. Okay, and what it says is, Alexa Menos worships his God. And you got a man presumably Alexa Menos, and another man on a cross with the head of a donkey. This is not from a hundred years ago. This is sometime in the first few centuries. Right? Alex Menos friend, neighbor, family member, boss, employee, wanted to say something nasty about him, and and he thought the easiest target would be the fact that this guy worships somebody who was crucified. The idea that, that the belief of Christianity, the belief in Jesus is a stupid thing, is not new. From day one, it has been absurd that people would pledge their allegiance to a criminal who was crucified. There is no worse death. And really, like modern historians will tell you, 
that actually there is no worse death than crucifixion. We have not found a worse way to kill people. In all of our human history, there's nothing worse than the cross. Because the cross was more than just a means of execution. Right? There was a beating, a flogging that happened publicly beforehand, not just to make them weak, but to embarrass them. To put them in extreme agony before they were placed up there. It often took days for someone to die on the cross. And as they were dying, eventually, like animals would come before they had passed. And the entire time, it's not just someone dying on a pole, but the entire community is around screaming insults and spitting and saying everything they possibly can to shame the person and their family that's up there. This is in a culture that prized honor and avoided shame more than money. There is no death worse than the cross. And that was important to the early Christians. Right? There are tons of ways that Jesus could have died. But they thought it was significant and they thought it was important and they didn't really think he could be God if he was crucified or if he died any other way but crucifixion because if he hadn't there would always be a lower point that God could have been to identify with us. It was important that it was the cross because that was as low as a human being could ever get. And so the fact that they worshiped someone who faced that end was ridiculous. Persecution took all sorts of forms. Right? The most common for, for churches like Philadelphia was somewhere in between drawings on the public square and executions. It was really the stuff that was in between that led to the executions. What would happen, actually the biggest enemy of churches like Philadelphia were the Jewish community. The way the social structure was set up was that the Jewish community was large enough, they were a big enough ethnic group, that they had sort of worked out a peace with the Roman Empire, that they could do their own thing and they would be left alone as long as they didn't try to rebel. And their own thing was worship Yahweh, their God, which was technically taboo because in the Roman Empire you had to believe that Caesar was Lord. He was not just president, he was not just king, he was emperor, and he was divine. And so to be in the Roman Empire, you had to profess Caesar is Lord. And if you were a Jewish person, you figured out how to work sort of underneath that system. But if there was somebody that you didn't like, that was a new religious minority that worshipped someone who had been crucified, and you wanted to make life miserable for them, All you had to go is talk to the governor or the proconsul, the official over your area, and say, hey, there are some people here who don't believe Caesar is Lord, and they're getting out of hand. That invites a visit from the authorities. And if you do it enough, and it becomes a big enough deal, the government calls in an enforcer. And that person will find a few of these Christians and drag them out into the public square, 
Start burning some incense. Make it really easy and say, okay, all you have to say is Caesar is Lord. If they wouldn't, that's the end of that. And it was a really effective message to get everybody else to get in line. That's what the church was dealing with. And so it wasn't just mass executions. It was living constantly under the ridicule of family, of friends. These are the people that are supposed to love them, that they grew up going to church with. And they're trying to figure out how do we navigate this, and some of them are dying. And it's happening at the hands of the people who should be their family and friends. And so in verse 9, when Jesus says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they're not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. He's telling them, I see it. And those people that should be your brothers and sisters and cousins, they're actually working for the enemy And I'll make it right. And it will not be this way forever. And so Jesus offers a promise. He says, I will make this better. Which is great. That's a wonderful promise that Jesus gives. There's just one problem. I will do that. That's at some point in the future. That's not right now. Right? That, that creates a little bit of a problem for me, if I'm really honest. If I'm in the first century church, if I'm in the church of Philadelphia, it is great that Jesus promises that, that one day he will address that. But that doesn't make it any easier right now. Because in the meantime, I've lost my job. And I've lost my family. And I've lost my friends. And I've watched my family be murdered in front of me. And so that's great that you're going to take care of this at some point. But what are you going to do right now, Jesus? Right at some point you have to ask, is it worth it? Is following Jesus worth that? Right, Because, because that, that's not good. And, and really, if I look at the rest of the world, there's a bunch of other stuff that's not good. Right? This place is pretty messed up. And so, so really, if Jesus can't make that better, if I'm just inviting more pain into my world by following Jesus, and there's already all the things that we know are wrong with this world, why would I follow Jesus? It just seems like it's adding another layer of hard to my life. Right? And I'm not sure what, what your particular situation is. I don't know what your story is. I don't know what, when, when I say that there are things that are messed up in this world, I don't know what pops into your mind. Maybe, maybe you're here and like Christianity is a big piece of what's wrong with the world. Right? And so when, when I ask the question, is it really worth following Jesus? You're thinking, yeah, what, what is it really worth following Jesus? Because really, maybe when you look at Christianity, you see a bunch of rules that are outdated and oppressive and want to keep you from joy. Right? Maybe you look at the church and you see a bunch of hypocrites with an agenda that have burned you and people that you care about a whole bunch. 
And so you say, why add that to my list? Right? Maybe you look at your circumstances, you look at the relationships in your life, your finances, your, your job, your health, your family situation, and you say, that's great if Jesus wants to promise me something out there, but what can he do right now? What difference does Jesus actually make? I think those are questions that a little church in a little city with very little strength would be asking themselves. I think they're questions that we in our church, in our city, if we were honest at some time, would ask ourselves. I think the church in Philadelphia found an answer. I think it's a similar answer to what some guys that followed Jesus years before them found. The story's in John chapter 6, and you don't have to flip there in your Bible. We don't have time to go through it verse by verse. But in John chapter 6, Jesus is wildly popular. He has just performed miracles. He's healed people. He has, has taught incredible things. He has done a lot of really neat stuff. And people are into Jesus. Okay, and Jesus' group of 12 has grown to like over 100 people that would say they are his disciples. And they want to follow him everywhere because this guy's got it going on. And beyond that, those, that 100 or so, there, there's thousands probably that are sort of going from one town to the next to say, what is he going to say or do next? It's got to be really, really exciting. And this huge crowd is following Jesus, and at one point he turns to them and he says, hey, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you, and you have no part in me. And and you just see this scene play out where everybody kind of like cocks their head and says, what? that, we're Jewish people, we're not supposed to touch blood at all, let alone drink another person's blood. Jesus, what on earth does that mean? And the disciples, that, that group of hundred or so, they're, they're talking to each other and they're, they're going back and forth and kind of grumbling and saying, that's a really hard teaching. Surely he doesn't think people are going to follow that. Who's going to accept that? And Jesus knows that this is what they're saying and thinking. And so he turns around and he says, Hey, you guys think that's hard? You aren't going to believe what's coming up. And so if you've got a problem with that one, sorry. He doesn't give them the easy button. He doesn't offer any tips and tricks. He doesn't say, you know, maybe we can come along gradually. Like, he says, no, no, no. You think that's hard. I know it. But it's going to get way harder. So, sorry. And it says, from that moment, most of the disciples went home. And you get this picture left with Jesus and the 12. Right? And really quick, they've gone from thousands. They're down to 12. And they're staring at him. And I'm sure they're waiting for the motivational speech from Jesus that says, we're okay. I've got like a really great object lesson. I'm going to go talk to them and they're all going to come back. So Jesus looks at him and says, you guys want to go too? 
I get it. It's hard. And then there's this awkward silence. And then Peter, as only Peter can say, spits something out of his mouth. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's the answer. That's the answer for them. It's the answer for Philadelphia. It's the answer for Alexa Menos. It's the answer for every person that has chosen to follow Jesus for the last 2,000 years. Right? I, I guarantee that if Jesus had offered a different outcome, that if Jesus had offered a different way, they would have taken that, but he didn't. I guarantee if Peter and those other guys thought there was any other option that was, that was really doable, right? If there's any life I can imagine outside of Jesus, at that moment, I'm taking it. Because that does not look like a fun road, right? If I'm the church of Philadelphia and the choice is follow Jesus or keep my life, if there's any way I can do life without Jesus, I'm taking that. Right? I don't get the sense from the picture that Peter is saying, no, nah, Jesus, I've got 20 other options, but I'm sticking with you. I don't, I don't hear happy Peter. I hear Peter desperate. Saying, man, I would love to go, but I have nowhere else to go. Because, because you're here, and I think you're God. And that's what all of this comes down to. It's the question that will never, ever go away, and every single one of us has to deal with. And that is, what do you do with Jesus? Right? Because if Jesus is who he said he is, that's the question that defines everything else. The facts about Jesus are that he was a real person. Right? There, there's no debating this. He was a real person. He preached a radical, revolutionary message that was threatening to the Roman Empire. It was a message that said that God cared, that he loved us, and that he was here. And he was crucified on a Roman cross. And he died, and he was buried, and he was put in a tomb. But then there were hundreds of people who said with their own two eyes, they saw him. And he didn't stay in that tomb. And you got to figure out what you do with that. Because the reality is, whatever options there are, if Jesus really did raise himself from the dead, if Jesus has power over life or death, that's now my only option. Because any other escape strategy you've got, any other philosophy on life, any other idea or leader or whatever, it's not that good. It's not on that level. There is no hope 
in anyone but Jesus if he is who he says he is and he did what the witnesses say he did. And so what do you do with Jesus? Because if Jesus is the Lord, dying with Jesus is better than living without him. And it's the only option that makes sense. That's what the church in Philadelphia had come to understand. Peter said, you are the Holy One of God. And the letter to Philadelphia identifies Jesus as him who is holy and true. Right? And Jesus does promise. He ends with promises. And he says, I I am coming to make this right. There is a crown waiting for you and don't you dare give it away to anybody else. He doesn't offer a way out of the suffering. He doesn't offer the easy button. He doesn't give them the escape strategy that says, do this thing, watch this YouTube video, and everything's going to work out fine. But he says, I know. I know it's happening. And I am faithful, and I will make things right, and this is not the end. And so this little church in a little city with a little strength is not forgotten. And that is the truth of living with Jesus, right? The evils of this world, the circumstances of your life, whatever that is, right? The hate, the doubt, the grief, the loneliness, the stress, the depression, illness, pain, exhaustion, bitterness, systems of oppression, your finances, your marriage, your kids, your parents, your mistakes, the the hurt in your life that does not have words to match it. All of that is known by Jesus, He sees it, he is not caught unaware, and he is not leaving you alone in it. And there's not a bit of pain you can experience that he doesn't get because he was there himself. And so the promise of Jesus is that he is with his church, he is with his people. And one day it will be made right. But in the meantime, you are not in this by yourself. Right? The question we have to answer, what do we do with Jesus? The question is, do you trust Jesus? Do you believe he is the Holy One of God who has the words of eternal life or not? If you don't, try something else. Let's see how far it gets you. I'll tell you, nobody's got the answer. And sometimes I might not like the answer that Jesus has, but it's the only answer that he's got, and I trust him more than anything. Right? I'm with him. I don't have a backup. That's my option. I don't have anywhere else to go. It's Jesus. And I don't know what your circumstances are. I don't know what your story is. But if you don't have Jesus in the mix, you should. If you haven't said, I need Jesus in every part of my life, every circumstance of my life, I think you should. Maybe, maybe you believe in Jesus, but, but you're, you're really tired and you have just a little strength left. And what Jesus would say is, trust me. 
keep, keep trusting me because I know, I see it, and you're not alone, and I am going to make it right. That's a hope nobody else has to offer. I hope that you know that hope. That's a hope that we can celebrate. That's a hope we can rejoice in. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being the God of hope, for being the God who loves us, the God who would do anything to be in a relationship with us. Lord, thank you that you have not left us alone in our suffering. Thank you that you have not left us in isolation. Jesus, I pray that that anyone in this room who has not placed their trust in you, that they would have the courage to say yes. That they would give you a try. Lord, I pray for the people who are walking and who are tired. God, whatever the circumstances, may they trust you in the midst of it because you are not surprised. Jesus, would you show us your faithful and true with us in the midst of suffering. May we be faithful people. We love you. It's in your name. Amen.